0: Future Proof with Jonathan McRae.
1: Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. On News Talk.
0: Hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. My name is Jonathan McRae. Thank you for subscribing, downloading, rating. As always, I know I say it at the top of every programme, but we really do appreciate your support and letting people know if you like this show uh, where we babble about science for 40 minutes or so. Let people know about the program. Um, We really do appreciate it. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us, science at newstalk.com. You can find us on Twitter. We're at Newstalk Science. And we get to all of those comments at the end of the podcast. Coming up on this week's program, we're going to talk about um, memories because we've known for a while that long-term memories are unreliable. Uh, They've led to wrongful convictions, in some cases lifelong family feuds, and so much more. But we've always trusted our short-term memories. I mean, if it's just happened just a few seconds ago, it's fresh, right? Well, new research suggests that our memories start filling in gaps with hallucinated details in less than 30 seconds. When memory doesn't serve is what we're going to be talking about in a few minutes' time. But first, it's time to look back at the week's science news. And joining me in studio is broadcaster and science communicator Philip Smith and Dr. Jessamine Fairfield from the University of Galway. You're both very welcome. Our first story, Jessamine, has to do with a breakthrough in Parkinson's.
2: That's right. And excitingly, this is a breakthrough in detecting Parkinson's disease, potentially at an earlier stage. So Parkinson's disease, of course, is a really, really difficult and trying disease um, that involves the cells in our brain that make dopamine and what happens when they stop working. It leads to difficulty in movement and memory, and it affects about six million people worldwide. Um, So there's this huge consortium of Parkinson's researchers called the Parkinson's Progression Markers Initiative, which is across many outpatient neurology services in many, many different countries. And basically, researchers at all of these different places have tested a new way of detecting a protein called alpha-synuclein. Um, which is basically one of the proteins that's really important for detecting Parkinson's. It regulates neurotransmitters, and when it misfolds, it can turn into these big clumps of damaged proteins in the brain called Lewy bodies. These are one of the like hallmarks. If you're looking at brains, trying to figure out, if is there Parkinson's or is this something else? This is one of the real big um, indicators. And so actually this new assay uh, or this new way of detecting alpha-synuclein, um, across over 1,000 people, they found that it was 90% accurate in detecting Parkinson's. Now, this is people who have been uh, described as symptomatic of Parkinson's who have already been diagnosed with it. But a 90% accuracy rate is really incredible. And what's exciting about this research is the the next step is basically looking to see if we take a sample of, say, a few thousand people who haven't been diagnosed with Parkinson's, can we start to detect that it's something that they should watch out for before the actual symptoms occur? So it's really, really huge uh, breakthrough and has the potential to really change how we detect Parkinson's, not having to wait for those motor and other symptoms to to turn up before we say, hey, like we need to start treating this.
0: Right. So it could be like a predictive technology instead of um, a diagnostic one.
2: Exactly. And because Parkinson's can be treated, you know, there's, there's medications that can be really helpful. It takes some fine tuning, but there is stuff that works out there. So the earlier that Parkinson's is caught, the more it can be treated and the better outcomes we can have for all the people afflicted by this disease, which is great.
0: Sometimes when you find um, a biomarker like that, it also helps you understand the nature of Parkinson's. Was there anything in the paper about that? Has it learned to any new understanding of Parkinson's and how it develops in the brain?
2: Well, I think what's interesting is that like Parkinson's is very closely related to some other types of brain diseases. And specifically, there's one as well called Lewy body dementia, which is subtly different from Parkinson's, but also involves these clumps of this one specific protein. So I think what's likely as we get closer and closer to like the kind of molecular diagnostics of these brain diseases, we'll start to figure out, you know, what distinguishes these different types of brain diseases and especially how can they be treated? How can we further refine the treatments that we already got in place?
0: Our second story, Phil, um, move over hydrogen. Ammonia
1: is here. Um, So there's a US US sustainable energy startup called uh, Amoji who last week announced plans that they're going to unveil an ammonia-powered zero-emission tugboat in 2023. Now, I don't know if everybody's like, oh, great, I've always wanted a tugboat. (laughs) But this is a big deal because shipping um is the shipping sector currently contributes about 3% to global greenhouse gases every every year so it's a big thing amaji uh, offers kind of what they're calling emission a, a free high energy density power solutions that will decarbonize transportation in the future it started by 4 mit uh, phd uh, alumni uh, and their kind of vision is that they're wanted trying to take heavy Duty transportation sector and really kind of tackle it, um, and and really go for like a net zero by twenty Companies being largely invested by like Amazon's Climate Pledge Fund, AP Ventures, Saudi. There's lots of big money behind this, and the real kind of benefits of what they're they're looking at with particularly with ammonia is. You know, energy storage, it's really good for, you know, like it's easily stored in bulk in, in, in kind of modest temperatures and like modest pressures. Uh, it's zero carbon fuel. There's no carbon in it. Uh, and it's a hydrogen carrier as well. So you can produce with this. They've already done testing um, with it. They've only been going from 2020, which is really quite interesting wow. in this. So they started in 2020, and um, they started converting uh, ammonia into a sustainable power source. And um, they got their funding kind of 2021, and they started then with a kind of a f- five kilowatt power scale. And uh, then they upscaled, they got more funding. Then in 2022, they were up to 100 kilowatts. Now, then they've just released they're up to 300 kilowatts um, in 2023, just this this month. What does that
0: mean? What 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 in, in terms of the utility of having that okay. much power? What is that for?
1: So the utility of that power, it means that if you're able to translate and use this power, you're using generating a lot of power without generating a lot of carbon. And they've done it with a semi-truck. They've done it now. They're moving towards, looking towards doing this with large-scale shipping. And they also have bigger goals that they're going to continue upscaling to this. So the, the real thing is that if they can continue to do this, that 3% of global emissions will be reduced drastically, that they're looking at a 40% reduction over the next 10 years.
0: Yeah, hydrogen is... Is, is often touted as you know, the next big thing, but actually th- there are problems with hydrogen um, in that a you can't uh, distribute hydrogen across our gas network, which is you know what we'd hoped, but actually you can only use only a, a very small amount of the really clean hydrogen on our gas network, but also um, it, you have to store it at a certain temperature, and, and it, it, so it's not, it's not ideal for transport because you you have to store it in, and it takes up a good amount of storage as well so um, ammonia sounds like it could be um a better option yes. is it difficult to to
1: make so, yeah, this this is the thing, actually, what, what they've partnered with. So they've partnered with a large ammonia-producing company, Jaya, in Norway as well. So it's easier to store in bulk. You can produce it quickly. Now, ammonia, obviously, is a pungent gas, but it's largely used in agricultural for So there are large facilities already around. There's also large storage facilities and already 150 ports around the world. So a lot of the infrastructure is there mm. already.
0: It's about utilising what's there and actually making massive progress on this. Okay, very interesting. Our third story, adjustment has to do with a paint inspired by nature.
2: Yes, this is one of the coolest things that I've heard about in a while. Um, so this has to do with structural color, um, which is something where basically the size of features on something are what cause it to have color because they reflect light at different wavelengths compared to like pigments and, you know, the stuff that we might normally see. Structural color occurs in nature on like beetles, fish, um, butterflies. So whenever you see like a really vivid color in nature, that's often from the structure and the size of the thing rather than like a pigment that's absorbing some like different color ir- of light.
0: Iridescence, is that what you mean?
2: Yeah, iridescence. Yeah. Um, and there's there's a lot of really beautiful examples of this in nature, but we as, as humans haven't really used it that much uh, until now. There's researchers at the University of Central Florida who have basically created a paint that includes all of these nanoscale aluminum and aluminum oxide particles to create different colors. Um, and this is really interesting because Because, you know, firstly, it's just a cool thing that no one has done before. Um, But also compared to normal paint, it could have a lot of advantages. So, you know, normal paint often has toxic components, which are often like the thing that gives it the cool color. Um, And if paint is in the sun for a long time, as we all know, it can fade. This isn't going to happen with paint made from structural color. Um, It tends to be non-toxic, or at least the aluminum um, components that they used are non-toxic. It won't fade, potentially, like, ever, because it's just from, like, the size of the, the things in the paint, Right. Um, And the other thing that's really interesting about this paint is that it actually doesn't absorb infrared light. So it's reflecting this light at a specific color that the researchers can determine. But the fact that it doesn't absorb infrared basically means it won't heat up the way a lot of stuff does if it just sits out in the sun. Mm. So if you think about using this paint in like a city context... You know, this could reduce the kind of heat island effect where the sun is on things if you live in a nice climate. Um, And so that makes them warm. And we, you know, spend a lot of energy cooling stuff down um, that the sun has heated up. So painting stuff that you want to stay cool with this interesting type of paint could actually solve that problem. And because it's a uh, paint using color from nanoscale features, you actually don't need as much of it as a normal coat of paint in order to get good coverage. So if you, as you do every day, are painting a Boeing 747, if you were using normal paint, you would need about a thousand pounds of just conventional paint to paint the whole airplane. Um, if you were using this new plasmonic paint, you only need about three pounds of paint. So you would reduce the amount of paint you need and your aircraft wouldn't heat up in the sun, which is a problem that I think a lot of us face.
0: How long have you lived in Ireland?
2: Uh, 11 years. We
0: use the metric system here. <laughs> I will have the metric system only on this programme. Pounds of paint. Uh, our final story, Phil, has to do with paper airplanes. Yes, give me the technical one or the one that sounds like children
1: will play with it. Uh, <laughs> and we will and we do. But it's surprising because as a physicist, and just we will we'll get to this, there is still contention about how planes fly. Uh, which really? Is, yeah. This I know there is because it's often taught in complete, I, I suppose, in... Uh, in totality that it's Bernoulli's principle where you have an area of fast moving air creates an area of low pressure you change the shape of the wing so it travels a different uh, distance over one lowers the pressure on top increases the pressure underneath and that's what causes planes to lift very simply that's not it in total there is um, there's also a Newton's uh, like the push that's pushing against the wing to, uh, to lift it up because if you invert a plane upside down you still have the same wing shape the plane still flies so there's still there's people trying there's arguments that happen and it's it's quite voracious in how people get across it. Uh, but Boeing still has competitions and open days where they bring the family along and they get paper airplane competitions to see how people work together, but to, uh, how to design things. And two Boeing engineers, Dylan Rubel and Garrett Jensen, have done something fantastic they've beaten the world record uh, for how far you can throw a paper airplane Uh, I feel I should say 290 feet for Jessamine but it's about 88 metres the length of a football field Um, so they've thrown and it's actually unreal because it's about Four to five meters, well, four point six meters exact, pretty much over the distance that someone's thrown it before. Now it's different to the the world record for how long a plane can fly. That's a different record. This is how far it will go, and it's not just as simple as you know
0: scrunching paper into a ball and throwing it as far as you can. Eighty eight meters mean, is huge. Like it's, it's massive. People need to get their head around the how. Like imagine throwing a paper airplane. 88 metres. It's enormous length.
1: Massive. And it, it's 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 a, like, there's a video of it online you can see. And it, the paper that they use, they use A4 paper, slightly bigger than the standard that they use in the States. It took 20 minutes to fold it. They both study origami together and they've gone uh, actually kind of modelling it on the planes, that, like the hypersonic planes that, that would fly, you know, about Mach 5. So it's real kind of gone for speed so that they get a, like, a quicker flight uh, process over it. So they travel that distance quicker um, rather than rather than trying to get it to glide over that longer distance. So Boeing are still like offering these things. And what's quite nice to see is that even as something as folding a paper or an ancient technology as origami, they're still learning things. But also what's really interesting is that they tried to model how this would work perfectly in a simulation and they couldn't get all the details without what would be the best launch angle because the models don't account like I said at the start for both of the Newtonian and the Bernoulli there's still a little bit of a well is it just unicorns that cause planes to fly in magic or is it actually all science so there's still a little bit of physical testing that needs to be done to be able to figure out that it needs to be about a bit of 40 degree launch angle so they're still using paper airplanes to actually mimic and model what will be the best
0: plane designs to come in the future which it's crazy, and when you think about it, because you know you, we have all these um high- tech modeling uh, systems, but uh, what I was really struck by was the the shape of it. It's a really tight airplane. It's not like your big, broad floppy yoke. it's a it, yeah. it looks like a like a really, really hard in the center. I guess that's because you want to be able to throw it very far. so it's not it's not a simple threefold. It looks like a very complicated and very dense yes. plane to start with.
1: And it's adding a little bit of... Obviously, the weight is centralised as well that you're getting it to travel faster, but the wing structure as well is still creating that lift. So it's a balance between lift being able to to penetrate through the air, but also have that kind of centralised, you know, weight structure behind it that can go the furthest. So as hard as you can throw it, 40 degrees and see if you can get up to 88 metres.
0: Uh, Have a look on our Twitter page. You'll see a video of uh, the, the, the paper in question, the paper airplane in question, which flew 88 metres, breaking the world distance record for paper airplanes. Uh, Before we go, Jessamine, you've got something coming up.
2: That's right. Bright Club Dublin is back this week on Tuesday, upstairs in Whelan's. um, That's April 25th. And we've got Kevin McGaughan headlining, as well as a great lineup of academics and comedians. So be sure to come out.
0: If you haven't gone to Bright Club, it's a really clever idea. It's comedians and scientists giving really fascinating short talks. Great night for a bit of laughs, a bit of inspiration and a few drinks. Bright Club Dublin, how do the people get tickets?
2: They can go to brightclub.ie or they can look on Eventbrite.
0: Dr. Jessamyn Fairfield from the University of Galway, and Phil Smith, science communicator and broadcaster. Thanks very much. Now, we all know that over time, our memory begins to fade. We may even find ourselves arguing with our brother about exactly who was responsible for what broken window back in our childhood. But new research suggests that human memory can go wrong just three seconds after the event has taken place. The author of a new study on short-term memory illusion, Dr. Marta Otten, is a cognitive psychologist from the University of Amsterdam. She joins me now. Welcome to the program, uh, Marta. Before we talk about your very interesting study, am I right in saying that up until recently, we we sort of took it for granted that recent, really recent memories were a very good representation of what has happened? The idea that our memories are very intact um, if the, the thing that's happened is just happened a few minutes ago. Uh,
3: Yes, well, that is a general assumption, but actually there is quite a bit of research that shows that our memory starts to sort of degrade even after a second or so. Um, So we already knew that we lose a lot of information very quickly. Uh, But the thing that we were really interested in was looking at when we believe that we are truly Correctly remembering something that just happened a second or two seconds ago, uh, whether those memories are truly reliable.
0: So talk to me about the methodology of your experiment, because I find those psychological experiments, how they are performed really interesting. What exactly did you do?
3: Yeah, so we gave people displays um, where they had to remember six items and they were presented in a circle on the screen. Um, and some of these items were real letters and some other items were um, reversed letters, so mirror reversed letters. Uh, we showed that display for, I think I think it was like, half a second or 250 milliseconds, so really briefly. So you had to pay a lot of attention. Um, then the display disappeared, and people had to remember it for an interval that varied between half a second or three seconds. And after that period, they were shown a little box on the screen on the location of the item that they had to report. So they had six things in memory, hopefully, and we told them which one to reproduce. Um, And then we gave them six options to choose from. So they had to identify the correct item uh, within those options. Um, What we did was we always showed them both the item that they actually saw, and the mirror-reversed version of that item. Um, So, uh, and we were really interested in seeing when people would sort of uh, go wrong in choosing the distractor, the item that was the same as what they saw, but the mirror-reversed version of that one.
0: So uh, to recap, there's six items they have to remember. They get a quarter of a second to see it, and then uh, the image is taken away, and then after a a brief period of time they're asked to recall what maybe a position two was, and that could be yes. a le- normal letter or a letter that looks uh, a mirror image of itself. So yes. R backwards, for example. Indeed. Okay. Indeed. And so um, what was, the, why, why was it designed in this way before we talked about the results? Uh,
3: well, what we were really interested in was to see whether people are driven by their expectations also in memory. So we have very clear expectations of what letters are supposed to look like, right? We have lots of experience with the alphabet um, and we really want to to see whether when people have these clear expectations whether they sort of fill in their memory based on those expectations so whether they were more likely to misreport the mirror reversed letters as real letters than they were likely to report real letters as their mirror reversed images so that was basically the, the, the sort of ground question that we, we were asking here
0: and and so that uh, I suppose pre-existing knowledge of what a letter should look like is really important. It's why presumably you didn't use an uh, an abstract image yes. and its reverse. Yes. So you want you want to know whether or not people's experience of seeing a C would expect would sort of get their mind to create the C the right way around because that's what they normally see.
3: Is that Indeed. the idea? Yes, right. absolutely. Whether we fall back on these these sort of rudimentary expectations uh, that are part of just their sort of experience with the outside world.
0: And so what did you find?
3: So we found that af- when we probed people after half a second, they were very good at reporting what they actually saw. So uh, I think that shows that memory is pretty reliable, especially when you ask people to sort of only report when they feel very confident. So we only looked at these cases where people said, i I'm very sure of what I remember. So when we looked at these cases, after uh, half a second, they did totally fine. But after three seconds, you see that there's this huge increase in people um, making these mirror-reverse errors, but only when the actual target that they were remembering was a mirror-reverse item. So then they started reporting, I actually saw the real version of that letter, where they really didn't see that real version, they saw the mirror reversed uh, version
0: right that, so they so they' so they're looking at um, their memory and yes. and flipping it to the way they would expect it to be
3: yes yes right indeed yes and being very confident about that as well
0: right and, and I suppose you're looking at the confident answers because you don't want people just guessing because that'll indeed. sort of ruin ruin the okay so um what this tells us is that even after a short couple of seconds uh, people are willing to use their previous knowledge of how things work to sort of hallucinate their memory because they, they can't trust what they've just seen because it's abnormal.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, that's uh, the, the question of why people do this or, or how this happens. I mean, the, the way you, you phrase it, it sounds very intentional. Hmm. Uh, I would say that this is much more of a, a sort of, uh, it's part of the system is that we have expectations and we use them. Uh, we also, I mean, the, the whole idea of, of a predictive brain or a Bayesian brain is that, you um, when we interact with the outside world we don't just sort of uh, uh, aimlessly pick up the signals from the outside world but we already have expectations of what the world will present itself to us like um, and sort of map what is coming in onto what we already expect there to to be.
0: Right so uh, you're you're seeing the expectation effect in evidence here yes. after something that's just happened. Yes. Uh, because we've talked many times about perception on this program. I, yeah. I, I love uh, the idea that our brain is is very carefully curating reality for us to give us <laughs> a seamless experience of the world when, yes. when of course, there's so many inputs going on that it, it has to sort of choose what it focuses Absolutely. on and so yeah. on. And so what sort of... Um, uh, conclusions can we get from this sort of research? I mean, I'm thinking of all of those, you know, um, those cases that were overturned in, um, in, in, in case law, particularly in America, by the Innocence Project, where they, they said, look, we can't rely on long term yeah. memory. No. If, if you see, uh, you know, a 16 year old boy run up the back steps every single Sunday morning at 10 a.m. and then someone's shot and you catch a glimpse of somebody, Three seconds later, are you going to fill in that, that kid's well, face because you, you, you see it every week?
3: Yeah. So actually, I, I mean, what we did here is very rudimentary, right? We only looked at letters, mirror reverse letters. So uh, I, I wouldn't confidently say that it, that it necessarily uh, also goes for social stimuli, but that would be my prediction indeed, that when we have clear expectations about other people as well, is that that will shape memory in the same way. So if we indeed clearly expect to see a certain person, if we just looked at a face, and we didn't perceive it quite clearly, right? Because that is important. We gave people a very difficult task here. It's not that easy to remember everything. Um, So if there's a very clear memory trace, these expectations will probably not really have a big influence. But if your memory is starting to degrade a little bit, or if you're uncertain, or the the stimulus was kind of noisy, um, then uh, we will start seeing these effects of... um, our expectations also social expectations in memory and i think more even maybe than sort of recurring events the types of prejudice that we have or stereotypes that we have about other people those are the types of pretty solidified bits of social knowledge that we have that could really influence even short-term memory
0: are there um examples in um Good psychological research that suggests that our bias um, lead us to remember things incorrectly?
3: Uh, well, there's a lot of research that uh, uh, suggests that there are perceptual effects, but I would argue that these perceptual effects, so what people report seeing, can also be memory Effects. So, you know, I I don't know if you're uh, familiar with, there's this uh, gun tool task uh, uh, literature, weapon identification task, where you're supposed to um, discern whether an item that you're shown is a gun or a tool. Um, And what you see is that when you've just seen a black face is that you're much more likely to identify that item as a gun than as a tool, and vice versa for just seeing a white face. Um, And that is often seen as... Either a perceptual effect or a response bias but you can also really think about this being or, or having effects on memory as well uh, so you've just seen an item you're not that sure of what you actually saw and in memory you start filling it in uh, mm. based on your expectation uh, wow so, yeah <laughs>
0: Yeah, I remember when we started this program maybe 12 years ago, we talked about the implicit association test. Yes.
3: Um,
0: And I I actually wanted to get your, this is a a test, I think you came out of Harvard. And the idea was that you were uh, supposed to quickly react to words and you'd have faces white or black. Are you trying to associate words or images? And at the end of it it would give you your your racism score, essentially. (laughs) Well, yeah. So I'm wondering, um, where do you sit on that? on that, uh, on that research, like, is, is, does that still hold up that that we are um, that 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 we are implicitly associating things um, oh, due yes. to race and so on?
3: Yes. So I would say, you know. I would never call this a racism score. So what this hmm. task uh, sort of charts for you is the the association in your n- semantic network, in your memory network, between certain concepts, and it can be anything. And in this case, it points towards an association that you have between certain social groups and maybe uh, valence judgments, such as good or bad. That doesn't mean that that is your opinion, which is, you know, that's what racism is. It's it's opinion that you have a conscious opinion i think the implicit uh, association tasks gives you an indication of the cultural associations that you have picked up just by functioning in the world mm. so yes i then definitely think that this task holds up in charting these associations but I would never say that at the individual level it gives you a score of how racist you are Um, because that is not also not what it was designed for it's designed to look at bigger groups of people and and take into account how they uh, uh, connect these these concepts with each other
0: Talk to me about your research then. Where do we go next with this? I mean, I suppose adding different modalities, as as they say in science, or or adding images, audio, and that sort of thing. Yes. Is that the next step?
3: Yes. So I personally, since I am really interested in stereotypes and prejudice, I would really like to explore whether these effects are also visible in the social domain. So whether when you have these social expectations, whether they immediately start shaping your memory similar to to these very basic expectations about letters, um, and that can be in, in multiple domains. Indeed, it would be visual, but I'm also really interested in uh, linguistic aspects: what people say, how people say it. So, you know, there's these stereotypes about maybe angry women, or uh, so. Do you indeed start hearing women being more upset after you've just heard them, you know, speak even just a second ago because of your expectation about their their demeanor. Mm. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm. I would really like to take this research and see how widely applicable it is, and and how far the implications reach. Also,
0: um, in the media, and it has to be said, some press um, releases from the academic institutions themselves, there's sometimes an overreach between what we can study in the lab and yes. what we can actually um, talk about in real life. Yes. And I'm wondering, um, is that something that uh, you you think about when we look at, you know, look, showing people's letters the the wrong way around in a lab <laughs> is very different to, you know, as we talked about, you know, judging to see whether or not yes. people misremember a face or so on. Yeah. Do you think that the sort of psychology that we're doing in the lab is generally replicable outside of the lab?
3: Well... I think the the tasks that we do are more boring but also more controlled. So when it comes to these types of misremembering things, it's actually Real life is much more noisy than what we give people in, in the lab. So on the one hand, I would say, yeah, what we did you know, with these letters, that's a really boring category. That's not what happens in real life. On the other hand, in real life, life is just so much more complicated. So if we observe these things in these very controlled and quiet settings in the lab, I would say that finding them in real life or that having these things play a role in real life is actually pretty um, likely.
0: Right. And and I suppose, uh, as you say, uh, it allows you to isolate out certain individual behaviours, control for other things that might be a problem. And and of course, if you're trying to do this in the real world, there's so many other factors that might um, taint that research. So uh, really interesting. Uh, Please do follow up with us um, when you, you start working on voices. Be very interested to hear Um, the results of that. As a radio
3: maker, that seems very relevant. (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
0: Well, listen, thanks very much for joining us. Dr Marta Otten is from the University of Amsterdam.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: I am someone who is very bad with um, memories, short term and long term, particularly when it comes to names. And actually, as I came into the studio to record this programme, Um, I was accosted by John Fardy who does the fantastic movie show um, here on News Talk and he was asking about my kids and he was like, how's Casper and how's Cohen? He must be eight now. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he said, name my children, Jonathan. I have to say, all the blood drained from my face because in fairness, uh, John Fardy is not just a lovely fella. He produced the show for like two years. um, And while I did know, I, I knew one of the names of his children, but I couldn't, it, wasn't, it was not on the tip of my tongue. It was a very embarrassing thing. And it happens to me all the time. I meet people, I don't remember their face uh, or I don't remember their name and I struggle to do it. And I think when someone does that, you know straight away, right? Every, every, everybody knows. You, you like to pretend to yourself that they didn't know. You go, yeah, I got away with that. But I promise you, as soon as you look at someone with that blank stare, even if it's for a millisecond, they know you've forgotten their name. And that's my constant state of existence. John, I'm so sorry. Will, Elliot, Amy. Now, there you go. Um, love to hear your stories, particularly if you are, um, if you are good with memories or if you, if you had a fight about something you misremembered. Let me know. I often tell a story about Coolio cutting me off in the toilet in a in a and, and this is a strange one, Coolio cutting me off in a toilet in a, a a mansion that used to be owned by Harry Houdini in LA a number of years back. And I was telling this story in front of a friend of mine and my friend turned around to me and said, That's my story <laughs> God's honest truth. I think I might have mentioned that before in the show. It's God's honest truth. I I, I, I made up that story, but I, I, I thought it was mine. Anyway, I'd uh, love to hear from you. If you misremembered something and then were corrected many years later, uh, would love to hear your anecdotes. To some of your comments from last week, we were talking about uh, this incredible mission to Jupiter um, and loads of your comments coming in. One person says, most people don't understand how profound the discovery of life on another world in our solar system would be two planets or moons with life in one solar system among billions of solar systems in our galaxy, it would confirm that the universe is teeming with life. You know, there is this famous thing, the Drake equation. And, and you know, um, when you, you know, look at the maths, the idea that we're on our own is exceptionally unlikely. And and that almost impossibility from a mathematical scientific point of view, you know, it it obviously... <laughs> It, it, it gives birth to the notion that there is almost certainly aliens. We just haven't met them yet. That, I mean, that, that's almost certainly, and that sounds crazy to say out loud, but there are almost certainly aliens looking at the maths and science of how unlikely it is that we are alone on this planet harbouring life. And Brian Cox put it really well in a, a travelling show that he did, um, in which he said, if that's true, we have an enormous duty to look after life on this earth if this is the only planet in an enormous universe of billions and billions of stars and trillions of, of, of planets, that if we are the only ones that have life, we have an enormous duty to look after it, uh, which I thought was a really um, interesting point. Um, another person says, surely, Jonathan, if there were aliens or other life out there, they would have made contact by now. Is it not a massive waste of resources to put so much money into a fruitless mission? So, look, the, the argument is... Um, you know the very nature of our existence the fact that you and i are, are here i'm i'm talking into this microphone you're hearing it from a speaker wherever you are the fact that that is happening is as a result of the core trait of curiosity that took us out of the trees and uh, it is uh, it is something that drives us forward and the uh, you know the pursuit of knowledge is one of the reasons why i love science and i i really think that we we need to value it the, the pursuit of new knowledge is what science is and so, I think it's important when you look at what we spend on other things. You know, the fraction that we spend on space exploration it is really, really small. I know it's a very, it's it's the same argument trotted out, but it really is. It's not a lot of money we put into this thing. And the idea that we now, if you Google all of the planets in our solar system, including poor Pluto, you can now see a very high res, res uh, image of each of those things. And if you put them all together, it's a beautiful uh, poster. And um, I, I I saw of it once of all of those planets, that you can see them in vivid detail and yet they are millions of miles away in some cases. That is extraordinary. Uh, And so I don't think it's a waste of resources and I think the pursuit of knowledge is a a noble and and useful thing if only to stretch ourselves as a species. Um, If there were other aliens um, out there, would they not have made contact by now? Google the Lanakea um, cluster, which is the cluster of galaxies in which... The Milky Way resides and you'll have an idea of how insignificant this particular planet is. The universe is flipping huge. I mean, even if you don't like, buy into the fact that it's, it's endless and infinite, it goes on for a very, very, very long time. So the idea that we would have been contacted by now by species who, you know, who knows what sort of um, worlds they've come from, I think, I, I think give them time is all I'd say. Um, Peter says, why is there such a narrow launch window? That's right, we were, t- we were learning that the JUICE mission had one second um, of of a launch window in which to, to launch, and if they missed it, they'd have to try again. The reason why is because the Earth spins at a particular t- a, a speed, and there's a, a very good time in the rotation of the Earth uh, that um, we'll get the best speed and trajectory and fuel efficiency. And so... Um, that will happen, uh, you know, once a day. Uh, and is, my, is my, my understanding, I think that's right. Uh, but it's once a day. And so you want to launch at the time where you use the least amount of fuel. And then someone else says, uh, which I thought was actually a good question, why does it take so long for spacecraft to reach other planets? Uh, that's from Emma. Emma, the, the reason is because this, this, uh, this spacecraft goes around the entire solar system Three times before it reaches Jupiter, it slings around because it has to get up enough speed. We can't give it enough thrust to go around the planet. So we we it has to, you know, get it's called a slingshot. It has to go around the sun several times, get enough speed to catch up with Jupiter, um, which is miles away. I mean, like to conceive how far away Jupiter is, um, just look at a a video of an animation of the the, the mission of of, uh, of juice. It's very, very far away. And that's why it takes eight years to get there. We were also talking about snitch bots, um, which are new dog-like robots that are being deployed in New York um, to help the police department observe. And someone says, but if you can see the bots coming, that's not gonna deter criminals, is it? They don't sound particularly scary either. Yeah, I think the the, the bots travel very, very slowly. And if you can see them coming, like if you started to see in the distance, you know, this is a lump of metal that was slowly creeping towards you. I think by the time you reached it, you would be putting your drugs back in your bag, in your pocket or whatever. So I don't I don't know what the utility is of it. Maybe it's a trial before they, they get the ones out of Black Mirror um on the streets. I don't know. Um but we know that the current models move pretty fast or pretty agile and I would not want them on the streets, that's for sure. Um That's it for us on Future Proof. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Uh, Thanks to Marisa Sullivan, Simon Keane, Steve Daunt and Hugo Da Silva on Sound. We'll be back with more Future Proof in your podcast feed on Tuesday, where we're going to be talking about three parent families and the future of IVF, which of course involves, yes, AI. Don't miss it. We'll see you next time. In the meantime, stay curious. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae,
1: proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland,
0: Sunday
3: morning at 10 on News Talk.